Thank you. Good morning. And welcome to worship. It is Sunday, February 12th. I'm told there's some kind of foosball game happening today. I'm, I'm not sure. I, as long as Philly wins, it doesn't matter. Wait, is Philly playing? Okay, they are. Wait, they're playing in the Southwest, aren't they? Uh, if you ever know Philly, when it comes to football games and championships, they tend to climb things and make a mess. And if it's hot down there on all the things they usually climb, like light poles, it could be a problem. Anyway, welcome to worship. Uh, we're so thankful for those of you who are joining us in person and those of, us, those of you who are joining online. Our scripture today is John 6, 1 through 15. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's starting on page 754. However, I might be reading out of my NRSV today. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain and sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was quite near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what, is, what are they going to do among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there is a great deal of grass in this place. So they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them, so that they, um, so those who were seated, distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were satisfied, he told the disciples, gather up the fragments, so that none may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those that who had eaten um, filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign they had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When re Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Blessed is the word. When I was younger, I actually kind of fancied myself a little bit of a baker as a kid because I could follow a recipe. Until I couldn't follow a recipe, I was making wacky cake. Now, I don't know if any of you know what wacky cake is. Maybe a few of our members do. But it is a, a cake made out of very simple ingredients that comes out of the Depression era. For whatever reason, it became a staple in our house. And uh, I may have mistaken three teaspoons of baking powder or soda, I don't remember, with tablespoons. It was not good. 
It is also, if you've ever had wacky cake, it's not a strong flavored cake. It doesn't have a ton of sugar or other things in it. The idea is use minimal ingredients. So when you put three tablespoons of baking soda in it, it comes through. In fact, I was a pretty terrible cook when I was younger. And it was partially because we just, I never cooked. I mean, my, during, during the school year, mom worked the morning half of the day at the office. Dad worked the afternoon half. So dad would drop us off at school. Mom would pick us up. We were wild to watch a little bit of TV. Then mom got to watch her show. She watched one uh, soap opera when we were growing up. And that was mom's chance to watch what mom wanted. And, and she cooked dinner. And while we were doing homework and whatnot. And during the summer, it wasn't like we were going to help mom in the kitchen because we were all eating up at the lodge. You know, and, and if... If any of you have ever like, cooked in a restaurant or cooked for your family, it's a completely different beast there. When you cook for like, a lot of people, like say 60, 70, 80 people at a go, it's a completely different beast again. So I just never really cooked. I could make pancakes. I think I may have made scrambled eggs a couple of times. And then in my senior year, I would go to visit Lauren at the townhouse that she was sharing with a couple other friends. And, and I decided to make dinner one night. And, and, you know, for me, my family, it was really common to put beans in anything because my, parent, my mom was vegetarian. It was her way of getting protein into our diet. So I grew up, like, instead of marinara, like, like meat sauce, meat in your red sauce on pasta, we had kidney beans which may have led on to my, I will eat most beans, I really dislike kidney beans. So for me, it was perfectly normal to say, stick some kind of legume or food like it. And so I put peas in red sauce and decided, oh, I needed protein, so I cut up some hot dog. So hot dogs, peas, and marinara sauce on spaghetti. Not a good combination. Also, I didn't know how to cook pasta. I knew how to boil water. No idea the pasta. And this really kind of offended my, my, uh, my then fiance's one roommate, Michelle, who's Italian and the daughter of a professional chef. I've gotten better at cooking since then. And a big part of it was going to friendlies and discovering, you know, honestly, it's really easy to cook. It's not a hard thing to do. It's just about practicing and building up your knowledge. And, and a big part of it is tasting. You know, just you know, dip, dip a taste spoon in it. Is it right? Does it taste right? Can I adjust it? Of course, friendlies, they don't want you to ever adjust the recipe. But you know, I, I started learning to cook at home and I got fairly good at it. I'm a decent cook. I'll call myself decent. I make some things really well and some things not so well. And a big part of it is I love butter. And I love strong flavors, so I tend to, to put a lot of spice, a lot of herb into whatever I cook. My father's the same way. We both think that we just kind of lack being able to taste subtle things. So we like a lot of pepper in our Alfredo sauce in order to taste the pepper. But as I was cooking at Friendly's and then later Fens and other places, I really 
I really came to understand something about cooking in myself. I enjoy cooking not just because I like to cook and it's fun to experiment and play with things, but I like to feed people. There's something about offering somebody food that will fill their stomachs, that will give them the nutrition they need to do something. Now, okay, at Friendly's, it was like honey barbecue melts, which is like 1,800 calories for the sandwich alone. I made sourdough, cheddar cheese, ranch dressing, and honey barbecue with chicken tenders, breaded chicken tenders, it, with plus fries and a soda. It's not nutritionally sound, but it makes you feel great. I'll tell you, a honey barbecue, oh, and bacon. It has to have bacon, right? But I, I learned to really enjoy cooking for Lauren and myself, to, to cooking for friends, to cooking for when my family visits. You know, I, I love to make chili, for instance. I love to make chili in my big cast iron Dutch oven. And I have that heat all the way down. It's got to be on the back burner because the front burners are just too strong. You know, you slow cook the onions in, in whatever's left over after you cook the meat. You know, you've got the... the the oil left over, and you cook the onions and the garlic in that, and you add the meat back in, and then you add in your spices and peppers and, and beans, just not kidney beans, black beans, good, kidney beans, bad. Add in your beans, and then you add in all your spices. I love to add cocoa powder to mine. It just adds a certain richness to it. Um, and then you just turn the heat way down, and you let it cook, tasting it every once in a while, adding spices as needed. Let it, let it simmer for like two or three hours until all the flavors are just intermixed with one another. And you've brought every ounce of flavor out of that, out of the peppers and the zucchini. And uh, if you added mushrooms, because Lauren really loves mushrooms, even though they're ugh, you know, just pulling every bit of flavor out. There's something sacred to me about food. And you, you think about all of human existence, it's really been about food. We can't live without it. You know, we, we can find water. Water's out there, you can find it. You know, you can, you know, you, shelter is nice. Warmth is nice. We need them to kind of survive, but at the same time, you can go a few days without one or the other if need be. But you can only go so long without food, and food isn't always easy to get. If you live out in the woods, you know, the woods around here, you could, you could feed yourself out of them, but they aren't what they used to be, and, and they still be hard. I mean, unless you really know, like, especially like mushrooms, unless you're really good at mushrooms, don't eat a wild mushroom. It bad idea. You end up frothing on, in the mouth and, and shaking around on the ground very easily. You know, in, in, you know, knowing that you can eat this plant but not that plant, that's an important thing. A lot of us don't know. And in order to, 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 to make a society work, you can't just be going out into the woods looking for food. There just isn't enough for all of us. You have to have people who are professionals, who understand how to take every square inch of land and make it produce something that people can eat. 
We can't survive without our farmers. It just, we can't. We need food to survive. We need people who are able to make it, to be around, to make it work. We have thousands and thousands of years of technology building upon itself so that we are able to make enough food that, you know, we, we, we throw away so much food, which is just a terrible thing. But we make more than enough food that every person on this planet can be fed. We actually make enough. We're just really bad at distributing it. That's an amazing thing. We need that. I just, I, I, I don't know if I can hammer this home hard enough, but I know for all of you, you understand, because I know what you're all going to do right after this, right? You're all going to go find some place that you can put food in your bellies, right? It'll be lunchtime. You'll need some food. Some of you might be getting ready to go to, to parties tonight, and you're going to be thinking about, you know, if you're going to bring this food or that food or have enough of this food or that food, and it's important. We gather around food. I'm sure out there, there are lots of households right now that are getting ready to chop up the Velveeta to mix it with some Hormel chili and some salsa to make the cheesy Velveeta dip because it's a staple for football games, right? We need food to survive, but it's also something that we have elevated to be more than simply what we need to survive, something truly special. So I think this is one of the reasons why this is one of the very few stories that appears in every single gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about the time Jesus fed a crowd. Sometimes it's 5,000, sometimes it's 4,000. Mark and uh, Matthew actually have the story twice with two different numbers of people. It's so basic that our need to eat and Jesus filling our need to eat. It's also one of the basic temptations. What is, what is the first thing that Jesus is tempted to do? To turn that rock into bread, the stone into bread. Not only does it represent the fact that, you know, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He's been on a starvation diet for 40 days. He's hungry. I would be hungry. I would love a piece of bread at that point. It doesn't have to be toasted. It could be dry and as hard as a rock. I will want it. Because I have not eaten much of anything for 40 days. But it not only represents Jesus' hunger, but the fact that Jesus can fix a most basic problem in human existence, which is our need to feed, our need to have enough. And then Jesus shows us in this miracle what it is like when Jesus does basically turn the stone to bread. He is able to produce enough food to feed everyone. Now, the interesting thing here is John doesn't stop the story here. It is possible. That's how the other ones all kind of handle it. They tell the story, it is a miracle. You know, in, in Luke, it's part of the way that he tells us how Jesus is like Elijah, only better. And, and Mark, you know, Mark tells you the story and drops it. That's how Mark does things. And, and in Matthew, he, he tells the story um, and, then, and then goes on to, to preach about it. 
But John, John uses it as an introduction to a larger section. Now, if you were to open up your Bible and look at chapter 6, you'll notice it's one of the longest chapters in the book. It's over 70 verses. It's a big chapter. And it all goes together. And it starts here. John is also the first one to connect it with something else. The Passover. Now, quick reminder. Passover is one of the most basic celebrations of Judaism both today and in ancient times. It all goes all the way back to when the Jews were, for you guys' history, you'd be going back this way. There we go. All the way back to when the Jews were in Egypt. So they're in Egypt. They're enslaved. Uh, Moses comes down with Aaron and they, they perform all these miracles. They turn sticks into snakes. They turn water into blood, you know, all, all kinds of fun things, you know, flies and darkness and frogs and, and hail coming down from the sky and killing cows in the field. You know, it's pretty terrible stuff. Until finally, God pronounces that every firstborn Egyptian will die. And the way that the Jews or the Israelites are going to get away with this, get away from this, is they are going to have a special feast of bread and lamb. And they will, when they kill the lamb to cook it, they're going to take the blood and they're going to paint the, the lintel and the crossbeam. They're going to paint all around their doorway. So that when the, when the angel of death comes through, it'll see the blood there and the blood will protect them and it'll go on to the next house. And if you ever watch Prince of Egypt, perhaps the best movie about this time, uh, it, it's, you, you see, you know, this idea of how it may look, you know, this, this white spirit passing through, and when it sees the blood, it passes over the house. Hence the word Passover. And so they continue to celebrate this every year, remembering how God protected them, how God passed them over to slay their enslavers and protected them, freeing them. This is the beginning of what will become the Exodus, when they become God's people, when they will come into their land and conquer it and become God's chosen people in God's chosen land. Now, while the others just told this story, in, um, in the story of Jesus, he centers it around this feast of Passover. Now, this begs some questions. Because normally for Passover, Passover, you know, think of it like our Easter or our Christmas. It's a high holiday. It's, it's a time for people to gather together as family and to celebrate. But these people are so enamored by this Jesus that they have followed him. Now, Jesus has made a big stink down in Jerusalem. He has told them that, you know, you tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the temple elites, understandably, said, yeah, no, you're not going to tear down this temple. And we don't like you and we want to kill you. So Jesus says, well, then I'm going to head out of here. And so this is while Jesus is heading away from Jerusalem. He's escaping Jerusalem. Jerusalem now means death. 
And so he's heading away, and all these people who should be going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover or to go gather with family, they are so enamored with this Jesus fellow that they are following him. Would you do that? Think about it. Would you, would you, you know, meeting this random crazy guy on the street, he's preaching and, and changing things around him, would you say, you know what? I'm not going to come spend time with you this year, Mom. I'm sorry, I'm not coming home for Easter this year, Mom, Dad. I'm going to, uh, to go follow this guy and listen to him some more. Now, I'm thinking, you know, I've, we've got a number of parents in here. Think about this if your kids are at college. Mom, I'm not coming home for Christmas this year. I just heard this awesome speaker, and I am going to go follow him out on the road to listen to him some more, okay? I've got at least one mom over here going, <laughs> and I get it. It's the kind of thing, though, that college students do. So they go and they follow and they find themselves at Passover time and Jesus performs this miracle, making sure that they all are fed. Now, I don't often do this, but I've got my Bible right here ready because the story doesn't end there. But I'm not going to read all 70 verses to you all. That would be my entire sermon, right? Instead, we're going to do this. So immediately following this, is the miracle of Jesus walking on water. It's almost kind of stuck in here. Like John wanted to make sure you knew about this story. But let's start, let's start looking this back over. Because it's not really stuck in here. So what happens after, after the Passover in the original story? Pharaoh says, fine, your people can go, and they go, and they end up being stuck up against, depending on your translation, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. And, and here comes Pharaoh up behind him, and they open up the waters and escape. So what's the next story that happens in here? Well, he doesn't open up the waters, but Jesus is able to walk across the waters itself. Jesus walks on top of the waters to escape the crowds. Actually, he goes and he waits out and then sends the others ahead of him, and then he follows them by walking on the water, the rough seas. So we have a continuing play of the Exodus story in here. And then, ah, where is it here? Jesus talks about this miracle, and then he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do not yet believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but will eat but the will of him who sent me. And then the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, 
Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is the true food, my blood is the true drink. Those who eat my flesh, drink my blood, abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. When many of his disciples heard it, and we hear many disciples here. In John, John views the disciples here as there's a group of core 12 that follow him around. But then there's all these other people, you know, all these people in the 5,000, for instance. Many of his disciples heard it, and they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? This is a change. You know, this is Jesus is encountering each of these high holy days. Jesus is encountering Passover. And we're starting to see a building of a new idea. Passover, the death of the lamb, saved the Jews whose blood was protected. It protected. Now we have Jesus saying, I am taking the place of this lamb, that the angel of death will come and take everyone except those who are protected by my blood. Now this is so abhorrent to some of the Jews. They say, how, how can we believe this? How can you claim that you are this lamb, this perfect lamb? Now, we, of course, all know who Jesus is, and this makes sense to us, but for them, it was insanity. I mean, it would be like anyone coming in here and proclaiming that they were Jesus Christ. We would think it was insanity, right? You never trust someone who claims to be Jesus. It's just a bad idea. Either they are insane, or they're going to get you into a cult, and it's going to end all Jonestown-esque. But we have a change here in Passover. It's happening a year or two before. Now, mind you, you know, John, John tells his story in a different order than the other three. For John, he starts in Jerusalem and he leaves and he's coming back. We know by the time he comes back, it's Passover time again. So he's spending at least a year out, maybe two, we don't know. But he's spending some time out. And so here he's telling them that this Passover will change. And they will be protected from the angel of death again. Except it's going to be an even grander protection. Whereas the Jews were protected from the angel of death in the old days, they still were subject to death itself. After all, we all are subject to death in a way. Even we Christians are subject to death. We will one day eventually in this body, will die. But, unlike the ancients, unlike those who, who came before Jesus, unlike those who have rejected Jesus, we are given a chance at eternal life, a life that happens after death, so long as we accept it. So as we come in and we, we encounter the... As we, as we accept who Jesus is, as we accept the blood and the body, as we accept Christ as our saviors, 
we find ourselves protected. So the next time Passover appears in the story, a year or so later, what Jesus is talking about will come true. He will become just as the lamb in the Passover, the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the one in which no blame sits on will take on the blame of all. That was the purpose of, the, of many of the sacrifices in the ancient temples. To, to take on the sin of whoever was making the sacrifice. Except it will be greater here. A sacrifice that will require no more sacrifices. And just as we, we you know, this is a holiday that's being changed... You know, Jesus transformed the Sabbath from being a day of, of rest to a day of holy rest in which holy work is still done around us. Now it'll transform Passover into something new. Instead of a celebration of death passing us over to protect us from one instance, a salvation from a thing that happened in the past. Instead, it will become Easter, a celebration that we are protected in the future, that death will pass us over. Even if these bodies should fade, the soul will continue. So as you go out of here today, as you go home and you, you eat, I'll tell you, on days after church, I never want to cook. It's the one day I really do not want to cook. I am, I am already up here super hungry because preaching makes me hungry. <laughs> I don't want to cook. I want to go grab something from a restaurant and head home and eat and then veg out on the couch. But however you go home today and you go and you fill your belly, whether you stop at, at uh, Jersey Mike's down here or, you know, all those subs that will be coming up soon and be filling bellies. Or you've got something at home in the crock pot ready to eat. Or you go and have a party today and eat cheesy Velveeta dip. Cheesy Velveeta dip. That almost sounds like an oxymoron. Anyway, think about how that food fills your belly. How it gives you strength and energy. Think about how Christ in your life and your heart does the same thing, filling you up, giving you energy and strength, and how it will never end. Even at the grave, it continues. Thank you. There's an old prayer I used to love doing when I was a kid because we always sang our prayers at home. I'm not going to sing it right now because honestly, it's a little high for me. It goes something along those lines of, in back of the bread is the flour, and back of the flour is the mill, in back of the mill is the sun and the rain and the Father's will. May you be fed by that will that comes to us in so many ways, especially by the eternal bread and the water of life that we were so freely given. May you find it in your heart every moment. Amen.